Spirits to Irish Radio Canada's home and abroad at Folk Alliance International New Orleans. Culture Ireland are well represented here and they have showcased five uh, Irish artists to the uh, audience and to the industry. And Liz Doherty is here with uh, Culture Ireland and we're going to have a chat with Liz who is a musician in her own right also and uh, we'll hear a little about all that. Liz, thanks a million first of all. Brilliant to be here. Really great. A bit about yourself. Well, I am from Bunkrana and County Donegal. Well, the accent kind of ties a lot. <laughs> and here we are, sitting in New Orleans. Huh? That's right. So, all good. So, I play the fiddle. Yep. And I, yeah, so I've done a bit of touring and recording and all that in my time. In your, and your, are you part, were you part of any groups or have you always been, are you going under your own? Well, I have played with groups. I played with bands like um, the Bumblebees. Okay. With Leachy Kelly and Mary Shannon and Colette O'Leary. Okay. Did a few years together and recorded. I played earlier on with a band called Nomos when we were in the Yes, I'm familiar with Nomos. And yeah, so that had uh, uh, John Spillan. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. John Spillan joined us after we were kind of going for a couple of years. Yeah. And um, I, have, I have that same Yeah, uh, high energy. Yeah. That was when I was young and could play that fast. <laughs> <laughs> and then when I was teaching in Cork, I had a group called Fiddlesticks, which was a big bunch of fiddle players. We had 24 fiddle players. Okay. Um, playing all music from everywhere. Okay. Uh, so, yeah, and I mean, I've been doing bits and pieces over the last year, a um, few years. I play occasionally with the String Sisters. I have that yeah. CD as well in the library. Exactly, international kind of yeah. group of women. Marie yes. Mooney from Alton is the, the main fiddle player, but um, she's often off on tour with right. the band, so I get to keep the bed warm for her when she's Fantastic. away. Fantastic. So that's brilliant, yeah. And I've done a few gigs in the last couple of years before we passed away with Nihal Suluan and the RT Symphony Orchestra okay. and the Concert Orchestra. Yeah. So I do bits and pieces, but I haven't been kind of playing full time for, for a long time, but okay. this could be the year that I'll and I noticed on your card you have the um, uh, doctor in there. What's the doctor music? Yes, I did a PhD back in the 90s okay. um, on Cape Breton fiddle music. Right. So up in Nova Scotia. So yeah, so I was in, uh, I did it through Limerick, but I was lecturing in Cork. So when Michal Osilowan moved to Limerick, yeah. I got a lecturing job in Cork yeah. and doing the traditional music course there. Right. Um, but kept studying on with my own PhD and finished that. So got to spend a good few years out in Cape Breton, which is little heaven. It is indeed. So you would have got the Celtic Colours numerous times. Absolutely. Well, that only started after I was there before Celtic Colours. Right. Um, but then I've been there loads of times. Right. And what conclusions did you come to relative uh, on Cape Breton fiddle playing? Well, I guess my thing was even like when I went there, very little had actually been written about it okay. and the story of it. So I mean, it was so familiar to me, but I was like, this doesn't make any sense, you know. It's in North America, but it's down Scottish. Obviously, being from Donegal, I was familiar with the Scottish thing and right. really interested in the Donegal Scottish connection. And this seems so familiar, but the piano playing was so different. And, and the story of the immigration and people moving from the Highlands and Islands of Scotland over to Nova Scotia yeah. and settling and holding on really tightly to the old traditions 
they, again, they had no communication with home once they went there, That's right. and they, it was really predominantly themselves. So they brought in these big clusters of families and communities. So they were just passing the tradition on. They weren't exposed to anything else for a long time, um, and so the music really stayed the same for a long time there, even though it was changing, like at a fair street back in Scotland, mm-hmm. with Scott Skinner mm-hmm. coming along and you know transforming mm-hmm. how the music was played. So it was really then, you know, nearly two centuries later then when when radio and they built a bridge, a causeway from Cape Breton to the mainland. Mm-hmm. People started emigrating to places like Boston and coming in contact with Irish music. Mm-hmm. But then Cape Breton music itself, the fiddle music in Cape Breton music started to change. And a big um, part of their own identity, I always think, is the piano. So they have a really kind of honky-tonk, busy, syncopated piano sound. Mm-hmm. Which, and I always find Irish people either love or hate. And it's very busy, so it's not to every fiddle player's taste. But I absolutely adore it. I think it's, it's just kind of, I find it so energetic and right. so connected to the dance. And the dance, of course, is still a big, big part of the Cape Breton sound. It is, and, and I was chatting with um, the uh, trio, um, Louis Schreier, and um, one of the ladies, yes. and uh, Terminal. Amazing, our yes. accordion player, yeah, yes. fabulous. And, um, you know, the Leahy, while they are on the Ontario side, uh, and he, she, as she explained, she was in the Peter Robertson migration. Um, most, oh, I was also talking with Jimmy Rankin, of course, Jimmy Rankin is the, the uh, Cape Breton and, and the yeah. Beatons and all that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, that's, the tradition comes back, and Jimmy constantly was referring to, to that how the Irish connection, and yes, I would have always perceived as you identified there was the Scottish, but what you are now identifying as well is that there's the Donegal, the, or the, the Northern Ireland Donegal linked to Scotland to Cape Breton. Absolutely. I mean, it's that kind of the Scottish thread, I think, that yeah. we kind of see right across them all. But there was a big interest always in Irish music in Cape Breton as well, funny enough, because um, people who maybe went to Newfoundland mm-hmm. then decided to make their way to the States. So there was a whole batch of them ended up staying, and they were going through Nova Scotia, but they okay. stayed then in Cape Breton, which would have been the first port then that right. they entered right. into. So it's an area in the north of Cape Breton called, um, called the North Side, yeah. and populated hugely by Irish families. So big massive um, Irish contingent there. They have an Irish society. Uh, there's lots of places like we have Irish Cove and yes. lots of names from Ireland as well. So the Irish piece has definitely been in there. And when people like um, went off working in the States and Boston in particular, and the Irish and Cape Breton things seem to be very much intermingled there. So okay. you had a lot of the Irish musicians connecting with the Cape Breton players and those halls that had, you know, several floors where they were all dancing and they mm-hmm. seemed to just kind of work their way between them so people intermarried then with Irish and Cape Breton marriages right. and we had then all the recordings made their way to Cape Breton as well right. and would have influenced the, the players there so there's a lot of tunes like even the big Cape Breton players of the past people like Angus Tism played loads of Irish jigs for example right. um, so there's all kinds of connections there Johnny Wilmot um, again from the north side was massively influenced by Michael Coleman okay. uh, Tommy Basker played the mouth organ okay. uh, and he would have had a massive uh, repertoire of Irish tunes as well and been really kind of keen to promote that. And then, of course, bands like the Barra McNeil yes. were so influenced by the Clancy's and Tommy Makem right. um, and, and all of that. And you can, you know, you can see all that through the rankings and, and all of that. And in many ways, as you say, a lot of this had never been catalogued or has never been uh, in any way studied. That story hasn't really been told an awful lot. Mm. Um, 
been, you know, just the, the whole story of where it came from and all that um, yeah. in one kind of place. You know, I think what's often with folk and traditional music, they find that historically bits of information were there in like CD or record liner notes and right. bits and books and so on. So I, I was just kind of pulling it together to, right. to tell the story of how it came from Scotland, but that it's not, it is Scottish music and they're very, very proud of their Scottish identity, yes. but that actually it has its own voice as well. So okay. that kind of Cape Breton unique brand and stamp on it, um, I was fascinated by. Right. And um, when you brought that uh, thesis back or your, your work back, um, did it cause any eyes to open or what was the impact of it? Well, before I went there, I had the best piece of advice ever because in academia, you know, you're sent out with your microphone and go and do your field work and show that you've been working hard and bring me back loads of stuff and all this. And a guy rang me just completely out of the blue one day called Mike Denny. He used to run, run the Wolf Trap Festival okay. um, in Washington, D.C. And he rang me one night in Cork before I left. And this was the early 90s. Like, there was no internet. There was no communication right. like that. So this was all a bit random. But he was amazing and gave me a great insight. And he said, look, your best approach is to go there and be among the people, play music with them, get to know them, and do not shove a microphone in anybody's face until they know they can trust you and build up that relationship. Right. So I went. I went for four months at the start. And I come back and you know so they were all you know to show us what you've done so I had to confess that I hadn't anything to show for it right. on paper but the relationships and the friendships that I built up and people knew what I was there for right. and they were so generous right. um, and they were open in their houses and you know I kind of went and I was introduced to this old couple Dennis Ryan from Tipperary picked me up at the airport and was like I'm going to bring you a friend of mine take an Emily Butler you'll stay with them for a couple of days until you get the lay of the land you find somewhere to live and sure, four years later, I was still living with them. You know, it was that kind of a, a welcome. It was amazing. Okay, you but just warned me. Never, never opened the door that way. Never, <laughs> never invite me for a day or two. Yeah. Um, but they were, and everybody was so like that. So it, it was a long, like it was four years of gathering material. Yeah. And, and during that time, I had brought a lot of them back to Ireland. We had a big festival in Cork. Yeah. Um, so that was the first time that a big batch of them had come together. So a whole plane load, and they picked up another gang in Boston as well. It was amazing. Right. We thought we were picking 26 people off the plane, and I swear about 70 came up. Right. They right. had gathered to be multiplied on en route and um, so by the time I kind of done the writing and stuff like that everybody had really kind of they'd not given me the party line they'd given me much more kind of depth and so when it came out um, of course there were gaps in it you know there was always going to be um, but you know it was a PhD thesis and it was I was seeing that people would read it and kind of get feedback um, from it and I didn't really do much with it then for a while but around 10 years later I finally thought you know what I need to do something with all this work to make it more accessible and I did go back and turn it into a book okay. which is if you're familiar with Sam Hinton Dalloway's Companion to Irish Music which is like an A to Z encyclopedia type thing okay. so I took the PhD and basically turned it into an A to Z guide to Cape Breton right. and that one has been really interesting because it was much more accessible it's in book form and everybody because we had internet and all of that everybody was able to kind of write bits and send it to me and right. it became much more of a collaborative update right. of the PhD and I was really keen that 
I felt that a PhD is kind of valuable to me, it helps my career and so on. It's a document sitting in a library, how important is that to people? Yeah. And I always just felt that I wanted to do something that was given back more to the community. Yeah. Um, and that project for me then seemed to kind of close the loop on that then mm-hmm. that it did. So, yeah, so it's, it's brilliant. I mean, people contact me on a daily basis and say, oh, you left this bit out or you should have put this in or whatever. And that's what I want because I don't have all the answers at all. So I love that and the more people will help me to tell the story well, the better. So how did you end up in Cork? How did I end up in Cork? It's, at that time, so I was, this was, oh my goodness, in the 80s, imagine. I know I only looked 21, but... Uh, <laughs> Uh, thank goodness this is really to be honest. <laughs> so in eighty nine, no, eighty seven, okay. Full confession, eighty seven, when I was looking to go to college, I knew I wanted to do music. Um, I'd done classical piano but I really wanted to do traditional music and Cork was the only option at okay. that time. So Michal Sullivan had followed on from Sean Oriza yeah. and it was the only place where you could do some element of traditional music. It wasn't a full degree, it was a classical music degree, yeah. but there was a wee bit of traditional music in there. So mm. um, there had been a few people from Donegal had already gone down um, and so they had kind of spread the word. And so yeah, so off I toodled. Mm-hmm. And it was, yeah, life-changing. It was yeah. amazing. Yeah. Um, and then I was so fortunate to, to get me home. So the one was just amazing. I mean, uh, just the best mentor anybody could ever have. Mm-hmm. It was unbelievable. Um, and when I finished my degree and was thinking, will I do teaching or whatever? And I said, well, what do you really want to do? And I, was, I heard this little music from a place called Cape Breton. Mm-hmm. I'd love to study that. Where is it? I said, it's in, it's in France. It's in Brittany. In yeah. France. That's how little I knew. Like, yeah. In Canada, yeah, of course. Yeah. And he was like, Look, if that's what you want to do, let's make that happen. And, yeah. you know, start to do some postgraduate work and that. And, yeah. and then, you know, the opportunity had come up then to kind of continue with the lecturing work that he started. And yeah. I was able to, to do that. And, and I worked there um, lecturing until 2000. But I was always trying to balance the playing right. and the academic. And while it's quite common now, there's loads of people who have PhDs and are players. I was a bit of a kind of a black sheep at that time. There wasn't, you know, many who were trying to, to do that. And, uh, and I, would, I would imagine being an academic because of the way you have your uh, year, your semesters, it gives you the ability, at least during your vacation period, the holiday period, to be able to pursue actu- uh, music. Whereas someone that's in a, an office job gets there two or three weeks. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And obviously because I was doing music, you know, I was able to get, you know, research leave now mm-hmm. and while I was in Cork and go off because of course then some of the bigger international festivals, you know, are through the year, for example, mm-hmm. if you want to be touring in Australia, that might be April, March, April okay. sort of thing as well. So but no, I was able to kind of manage as well. But after um, I think I'd done eight years and I kinda I was footless and fancy free and single and no commitments, um, you know, and I just thought, Okay, uh, I kinda wanna be doing more of the playing and all of that, that was kind of going well at the time and I thought, sure, do you know what, sure, I'll just retire from this academic malarkey and go off on tour. But again, then I've always kind of felt the draw back to, you know, writing about and researching mm-hmm. and, and all mm-hmm. of that and, and then doing more practical work and I ended up doing all this consultancy work then for local authorities, you know, councils and stuff okay. like that for traditional music projects. And right. 
and then I ended up in the Arts Council then, kind of on the, the back of that. Um, at the time, there was a whole lot of conversation going on about how traditional music and the traditional arts in general was being supported by the Arts Council. And so I, yeah, got a two-year contract with them to kind of try and make a difference there. So set up some funding. There's still an, a fund for traditional musicians called JESH, which I had set up then during that time. So it was brilliant to kind of have an opportunity to, to dip into that area where you can actually make a difference and yeah, create yeah. opportunities for trad players. And then how did you get things up with Culture Ireland? So yeah, so then after all that, kind of, I was horrible at being self-employed. Oh my goodness, I was just terrible. I need, I definitely needed the oil paycheck at the end of the month because right. even you'd be making loads of money, I could sure it was gone before I got it. It was a disaster at being self-employed back then. So I thought, right, I need to get my head together. And uh, again, a couple of people were pushing me back towards academia. Um, and so an opportunity came up in Derry at Ulster University and, you know, Donegal is home. I'm from Bunkrana, so... It kind of seemed like maybe an obvious place to be. There was no traditional music in the universities in the north at all. Okay. Whereas it had started to build in the south, and I'd also been involved in a program in Scotland and in England, and in the states looking at bringing traditional music into their programs based right. on the court model. Right. But the north was still a blank canvas. Yeah. yeah. Here we we give that a shot. So yeah. back into academia as well. So I've done 13 years there, but I'm again in transition mode now. Yeah. So I'm kind of moving out of that and so the Culture Ireland opportunity came up with um, uh, the minister put out a call every now and again for, yeah. for people for that and um, appoint people to the board so yeah I was appointed last year and brilliant to be involved in that again just to kind of get plugged back into the you know the practice and what people are doing and the supports and infrastructure there and of course I suppose the great thing about being a part of Culture Ireland is that on the one hand there might be the administrative side and all that but you're actually in the call phase as well. That's the thing. Um, and I think that's one of the, the things that I can bring here is that you're, you're seeing what's going on on both sides of the, the table. So you yeah. can speak to the musicians as a musician yeah. and then you can advocate for the musicians because you know, you're know you actually knowing firsthand what is needed. Right. Um, but Culture Ireland, we're so blessed to have it in Ireland. You know, yeah. and Especially if you hear Folk Alliance, you know, we kind of take it a bit for granted nearly yeah. um, at home. And, uh, but when we're talking to all these people from other countries, are like, well, we have nothing like this. Yes. It's amazing. Yeah. Um, and all the bands who are here, they've all done so well. And they're all so appreciative of the fact that, you know, I mean, it's not we don't have a fortune to give to people, but that support and that endorsement as well, you know, it's often as much about the, the kind of that, that a national body is validating your work, you know, to say that you're artistically brilliant. And I think it's also that in some cases a national body has noticed you. Absolutely. That is really... For an upcoming artist particularly. Completely. I mean, it's such a busy space out there and, you know, yeah. so competitive. But to have that kind of seal of approval, stamp of approval from something like Culture Ireland is nearly as valuable as the, the plane tickets to get here, you indeed, know, as well. Indeed. Well, Liz, it's been fascinating chatting with you and learning a little bit more. If anyone wants to know more about you on your music side, are you out there on Facebook? or? I am indeed, and my website is just lizdoherty.ie, right. so I'm not hard to find. Right, <laughs> and uh, we should give Culture Ireland a good plug here as well? Absolutely, yes. Yeah. So Culture Ireland, um, plenty of opportunities. Our brief is to support artists 
taken their work outside of Ireland. Yes. Um, so we can support the artists directly, but also we can support festivals and events that will enable Irish okay. artists across all genres. So not just music, but you know, film, theatre, uh, literature, everything as well. So yes. um, Christine Fisk is our director, um, and she's based in the office in Dublin. Um, and the team there very happy to talk to anybody who's wanting to take Irish music and showcase it um, internationally. Thanks, sir. Brilliant.